The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's program is a follow-up on a program that we had done earlier on tobacco and archaeology. There are probably many ways one can phrase it, but we want to do this in sort of as general a way as we possibly can because we have with us three experts on the topic, and it is a topic that we got a lot of reaction and positive feedback from in the initial broadcast of a similar program. So I'd like to develop the theme a little bit more and look at a number of other perspectives on the topic and one of the interesting aspects of this is we are looking at it from a technological as well as a cultural point of view in other words we're looking at the uh, hard and fast archaeology as well as the cultural and interpretive elements of tobacco smoking ritual and a variety of other different ramifications that smoking and tobacco have for understanding in general prehistory and also, of course, history as well. My guests today are Dr. Sean Rafferty of uh, the State University of New York at Albany. He is the director of the Archaeology Field School at Schoharie, New York, and he is the editor of the publication Northeast Anthropology. His interests are in the field of archaeometry, and he has a specialty in residue analysis, which as we'll talk about is a technological element of the of the archaeology, the residue of the smoke itself. And I'm very happy to welcome you to the program. Thanks for being here, Sean. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Georgia Fox is a professor in the Department of Anthropology at California State University, Chico. Uh, she directs the Smith Museum of Anthropology and the Museum Studies Program and is also the director of the Heritage Resources Conservation Laboratory at that institution. Her specialties are in British colonization of the New World and the African diaspora, She also has an interest in maritime and underwater archaeology, material culture and museum studies, as well as conservation and ethnographic materials. 
and she has also developed a focus on cultural heritage. And welcome to the program, Georgia. Thank you very much. And finally, Dr. Shannon Tushingham is a professor at Washington State University in Pullman. She directs the Museum of Anthropology at Washington State University, and her research program focuses on understanding evolutionary trends in the human environmental dynamic. She looks at the historical record and focuses on projects that have been developed in collaboration with descendant Native American communities in the Pacific Northwest Coast and California. And welcome to the program, Shannon. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think uh, just by defining and describing your backgrounds, you do present very different, I think, specialties in the issue and the general question of smoking and the archaeological record. Um, let me start with you, uh, Dr. Fox, because we, uh, as I said before, Sean um, has already been on the program and has some very interesting perspectives, primarily from an Eastern perspective. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in the study of tobacco smoking and the archaeological record? Well, when I was in graduate school, uh, we had a project in Port Royal, Jamaica, which was one of the major British ports uh, during the 17th century. And from 10 years of excavation, we recovered about 21,000 clay tobacco pipes. And wow. when you find that many clay pipes from an archaeological site, it's telling you something. So I did my doctoral work on the clay pipes, and then from that, uh, I was trying to determine what was going on culturally from uh, these these archaeological remains, and what, what were they trying to tell us? So that's how I got started on this. And uh, let me move over to you, Shannon. How about you? Um, I started this work, uh, like George, I got involved uh, during my graduate work. Uh, when I was at UC Davis, um, I was excavating sites in Northern California in collaboration with um, Paloa tribes in that region. And we found um, pipes, not 21,000, but we found, um, <laughs> we found some pipes. And they were very intriguing to me because I knew that tobacco um, had a uh, really important place in uh, today's Native American cultures. And I was curious about um, their, its past use. Uh, and then I read uh, Dr. Rafferty's pioneering studies on uh, residue extraction and um, that's kind of where I got started. So, Sean, let's uh, let's go back to you and uh, give us again your perspective on how you got interested in uh, Native American studies and tobacco and archaeology. Well, like a lot of things um, in my life, at least, it was sort of a, a random occurrence. Um, there, there was a uh, site in um, Vermont called the Boucher site, which is about 3,000 to 2,500 years old, a cemetery site, uh, which had a large number of smoking pipes as burial inclusions. And I was casting about after finishing my master's work for uh, a Ph.D. topic, and a former advisor from my undergraduate years happened to have some samples of residue from a few of those pipes and uh, the possibility of trying to use some uh, chemical analysis to see if those were, in fact, 
used to smoke tobacco came up, and uh, that's sort of how it started, just a um, co-occurrence of, of, of me with the, the need for a project and them with the data that needed to be analyzed. And I've stuck with it ever since. Let me ask you, um, and, and Sean, I think you're, you're, you'd be most appropriate at this point because um, you have that very extensive background on it. How far back can we trace tobacco smoking in the new world? Well, we can, we can trace smoking back pretty far in, in as much as we have tobacco pipes, the actual, well, I should say we have pipes, smoking pipes, that go back at least 3,000 years well into what's the, the late archaic period, pre-sedentary society, pre-agriculture in the, um, in the eastern United States. Uh, the issue is it's still an open question about what was smoked in those earliest pipes um, before the residue analysis work, which I've done in the past, the botanical evidence for tobacco was actually pretty scant. There are some methodological problems. Tobacco seeds are very small. They're difficult to recover, uh, even with flotation. And, um, you know, the, the use of smoking burns the, uh, the residues to begin with, so there's a destruction even before it gets deposited. Hence the use of residue analysis um, the work which um, I conducted before pushes that back to about 2,500 years. That's the oldest sample I've looked at was around 300 B.C. from that, um, from that site in Vermont. But there's maybe 1,000 years of tobacco pipes that go back before that date. We think they were probably used for tobacco, but there are numerous other examples of plants that we know were in the natural environment and which there's ethnographic evidence for tobacco smoking. So I can say about 2,500 years for definitely and an unknown period before that, um, hypothetically. So, in theory, then, we don't know necessarily what was being smoked in the beginning, and again, we're talking about the continental U.S. here, but you're saying you could go back into the archaic period. Absolutely, yeah. There, you know, there are other plants that could have been used. One um, hypothesis is that tobacco could have become a replacement for some more, um, oh, uh, there's the, the speculation that they might have been used to, they might have been smoking or in, ingesting datura, jimson weed, um, which is hallucinogenic and delirium, but is also quite toxic. Uh, so it would alter your state of consciousness, but uh, tobacco is much more, oh, we'll say, um, manageable as far as intoxicants go and less dangerous, so that when it came up from the south, it may have found a ready niche and replaced that. But again, that's uh, speculation looking for data at this point. So let me go back to uh, Georgia Fox here because you had mentioned that you had done your research in the Caribbean and Jamaica, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. So uh, let's look at that and let's look at this whole question in geographic context. What kind of reconstructions were you able to make? 21,000 pipes is a lot of smoking for yeah. one one person or for one social unit or even for one <laughs> clan. I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, first I want to say that <clears throat> tobacco has been used in the southern hemisphere and, and the, the Caribbean region for a long time. We know that 
uh, traditionally, um, Amerindians were using tobacco, probably rolled form. And we know that, you know, Columbus's uh, early voyages, they had witnessed um, Amerindians smoking uh, tobacco. So this is nothing new in, the, in this region. But what we see is the uh, discovery, as my colleagues know, the discovery of tobacco by Europeans uh, through Native American use was adopted quite quickly. Uh, in fact, I would argue that it's probably the most, in terms of all the stimulant foods, that was adopted the most quickly with a great deal of zeal. Um, examples of t- tobacco plants were taken back to Europe, particularly England, and planted there and cultivated. And soon people began to uh, smoke it um, and, you know, uh, discovered stimulant qualities, and <clears throat> this touched off a whole a range of behaviors, particularly smoking tobacco uh, and planting tobacco and cultivating it, which started a whole new system, agricultural system, particularly in the Chesapeake colonies. What happens with tobacco is that at one point, by the 1620s, it has glutted the market, um, where it was initially first uh, available was fairly expensive, and we find that these early tobacco pipes had quite small bowls. But as tobacco becomes more available to other people, um, what happens is that everybody is smoking it. And so we see at Port Royal, which is a a port town, which has a lot of, you know, uh, uh, import uh, commodities that people, we find that tobacco pipes are one of those commodities that's quite common. And so by this point, we're seeing mass production of clay pipes, particularly in uh, places like Bristol, England, and there are export, there's export uh, pipes for the colonies, the American colonies in the Caribbean region and along the eastern seaboard. So um, this profusion of clay pipes manufacturing and with the adoption of smoking is reflected at the archaeology of Port Royal particularly. But we find clay pipes at a lot of historic sites too. Um, contact sites when uh, Amer- Europeans are coming in contact with Native Americans after being established for a while. And we also see uh, throughout uh, North and South America and all, uh, all over the world, really, that these clay pipes are showing up on historical period sites. So if it, what I'm guessing from what I'm getting actually from your discussion is that uh, once once it's out there and once really it's gone, in a sense, back to Europe, then all of a sudden it, it really catches on on a, a much larger scale and it, it sort of bridges cultures in a way um, because now you have more extensive commercial and, and merchandising networks and then all of a sudden it goes all over the place. It does. Uh, let me ask uh, Shannon, um, you, you have have a particular focus on descendant communities. Are you getting any sense of the continuity of smoking by talking to uh, Native American descendant communities, or is that a topic even that that you've ever raised uh, in discussing with elders and uh, members of of contemporary tribes? Uh, Yes, actually, uh, tobacco has a very long history of use, and it's been regarded and is regarded as a sacred plant by many communities. Um, and most of the groups I work with are in the Western United States. Um, they, there's a history here that's very deep of tobacco use. Um, and most people in this area uh, were using um, indigenous forms of tobacco rather than the domesticated or farmed species of tobacco that um, are the ones that George is talking about and Sean, uh, many of those varieties that were used in the eastern United States. Um, And so uh, they used and manipulated these plants for probably thousands of years. We have confirmed evidence of 
um, at least uh, a, a 1,100 years of use uh, through residue analysis. Um, but it probably goes back much earlier. Uh, so there's a definite uh, um, that tobacco is still used um, by many communities, uh, not just recreationally, but in ceremonial contexts and ritual contexts. There's some ceremonies, um, like world renewal ceremonies in certain parts of California, for instance, um, where tobacco is such a big part of that. They, they give uh, tobacco offerings um, in the ceremony. So um, they regard, uh, if, if tobacco is not part of that ceremony, then the world can't be literally renewed. So it's that, it's that deep and far back in, in their culture. And we will be back with our fascinating panel and discuss our and follow up our discussion on tobacco and archaeology right after these words. Don't go away. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming Live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein with a special issue edition, rather, of 
Um, Indiana Jones myth, reality in 21st century archaeology. Today's topic is tobacco and archaeology. And uh, our guests are uh, Dr. Sean Rafferty of the State University of New York at Albany and Dr. Georgia Fox of Cal State University, Chico, and Dr. Shannon Tushingham of uh, Washington State University. Uh, let's go to you, you Dr. Georgia Fox. Um, you have recently written a volume um, on the various aspects of tobacco smoking, its dispersal, its processing, its distribution, and the extent of, of networks in, 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 the, the toba- in the tobacco field, if, if, if I might call it that way. Why don't you get us into a little discussion on the emergence of tobacco, its spread, and what are the major nick points in the evolutionary history of tobacco? Okay. Well, one thing I want to say about the book is it's part of the American series by, uh, edited by Michael Nassani, and it's, uh, it has a strong focus on the Americas, but uh, the book, uh, basically what I've done in the book is look at the long cultural continuum of tobacco use, and it's it's obviously been around for a long time. People have been using it for a long time, and um, people credit the discovery of tobacco by uh, Europeans as really this takeoff of tobacco. But if we look at tobacco from a long historical perspective, it's obvious that people have been using it for a very long time, way before Europeans discovered it. But once it became part of the trade network um, in terms of uh, commodities that were traded uh, throughout the world, it was one of those chief commodities uh, before the advent of sugar, or about, well, about mm-hmm. the time of advent of sugar, um, that became uh, an important commodity in terms of um, trade and connections and colonization and all those sorts of things. So it has, it, tobacco, it didn't create these things, but tobacco is part of this whole development of networks of trade and <clears throat> um, commodities that became quite popular. One of the things that happens with tobacco is that other stimulant foods appear on the scene as well uh, around uh, the same time, a little bit, maybe a little bit later. Um, chocolate, um, sugar, tea, coffee, all of these stimulant foods are part of a, a new group of commodities that um, people are discovering. And, and the things that we take for granted today um, have this really deep history and interesting history that, in, in my mind, have revolutionized human behavior. Um, so these trade networks, these long histories, um, these connections, all have to do with you know change in the early modern world. Um, I find it really ironic too that Europeans adopted tobacco and then they reintroduce it back to Native American communities and try to sell it, uh, both pipe, trade or sell uh, pipes and tobacco back to the very peoples who they actually took it from. So that's I, an interesting that, point. It, there, yeah. that, is a, that is an interesting point, and, and I guess one of the questions I would have for you would be, let's, let's consider, for example, tobacco in the same pathway as domesticated grains. What, uh, what was the natural prototype, and what was undomesticated? And what, what Sean had indicated earlier that we don't know exactly that, that tobacco was the very first plant that was smoked. What do we know about pre-domesticated tobacco? Anything? Well, I, I think Sean and uh, Shannon can answer that question better than me, but I will say that, you know, there have been certain varieties, there are several, many varieties of tobacco, and it's essentially a new world plant. Um, there are two types that were adopted by Europeans, uh, Nicosiana rustica and Nicosiana tobacco. Um, those are the two most common types, but there were others as well. 
<clears throat> and some have some are more potent than others, depending on. And then also, there's a actually interesting matter of preference among Native Americans about which ones they actually like to use for for ceremony, uh, ritual purposes, and also for you know forms of recreational smoking. So um, there are there are different types, and they can be differentiated. But I I really can't speak to uh, much earlier varieties. Uh, I think I would leave that to my colleagues. Sean. Well, my understanding, I mean, I know mostly the North American situation. Um, for those interested in uh, the, the details there, I'd, I'd recommend a, uh, an anthology edited by the, um, uh, by the late Joe Winter called uh, Tobacco, Sacred Smoke, and Silent Killer. Um, but there are papers in there by some ethnobotanists um, Gail Wagner uh, comes to mind that look at the origin of Nicosiana rustica as a um, as a South American sort of indigenous weedy plant of the the sorts of plants that tend to co-occur in disturbed soils, the sorts of things you tend to find around human settlements. Um, uh, anyways, and there's likely a long history of of humans, if not domesticating tobacco in the sense that you domesticate corn or wheat or something like that, certainly encouraging the growth of weeding, collecting, maintaining gardens of for, you know, potentially um, uh, millennia, and the, that, that idea of there being a plant with stimulant and even potentially hallucinogenic properties in sufficient uh, quantities uh, diffuses northwards um, from, I, I, I hesitate to throw out dates without consulting the literature, but I, I want to say maybe around 2500 B.C., I think there's evidence from South America uh, as, as far back uh, as that. Perhaps, perhaps Shannon can, can comment more. Shannon? About right. Me. <laughs> yes. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, my, my, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, my understanding is, yeah, along with what uh, Sean is saying, and that it's hypothesized, uh, there was a, a botanist from Berkeley, uh, um, Goodspeed, I can't remember his first name, but um, he studied tobacco extensively, um, I think it was in the 20s and 30s, and he, he went on these grand expeditions to South America to collect and study the different tobaccos. Um, mm-hmm. And he, he hypothesized that uh, the... the um, Due to the the number of species, um, the greatest number of species uh, that he could find um, in in South America was in the eastern uh, flanks of the Andes, so Peru, eastern Chile, that sort of thing, and mm-hmm. that uh, perhaps domestication began in that region. Um, and it, it's interesting because um, Joe Winter, uh, this is the person that. Uh, Sean was referring to who wrote that anthology or edited that anthology. Um, he really thought that uh, tobacco might have been the first domesticate or one of the first domesticates even before um, you know some of these food plants. That that it really had this attraction for humans that you know we are dealing with today in the modern world. People are billions of people are addicted to this to this uh, substance, and it has this just tremendous history that we're just beginning to um, understand how people were 
choosing specific tobaccos. I think there's something like 100 different species of Nicotianas. But like Georgia was saying, human beings have selected or, or they prefer, they seem to have preferred certain species. So there must have been something chemically or I mean, some, some properties of those particular tobaccos that they liked and they focused on. And over thousands, probably thousands of years, um, through human manipulation, we have tobacco, you know, the, the tobaccos that we see today that are uh, grown industrially in many places. Well, you know, you raise a couple of very interesting points here. I mean, if if uh, somebody from from this part of the world were to think about tobacco, and and again, more in a layperson's uh, perspective, they would say, okay, if I'm looking for terrain that 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 is likely to produce tobacco, let's look at at what we have around here in this country. And of course, we'd be looking at North Carolina, Virginia, places like that. And my question would we be, is that because that was the hub of some of the earlier settlements and they were so, I won't say intoxicated by tobacco, but they were, they were so excited by it that they planted it and grew it in the area near where they lived? Or do we have clues based on the relationship between vegetation, soils, and demographics as to where to look for some of the earlier pre-domesticates. Do we have that kind of information? Has any of you who do this type of research been focusing on that sort of perspective to get at some of the early plants or the more successful plants? Uh, Sean? Well, I mean, my understanding about the, um, the you, you're probably looking for more economic reasons and historical reasons why you're finding it. Um, I mean, it, it, uh, in, uh, in the Carolinas and in the, you know, the, the coastal southeast in general, those, those right. were the hubs of economic and uh, uh, of economy and trade in the, um, you know, in the 17th century and, and afterwards. Um, and, you know, tobacco is... As I was saying, it's a it's a weedy plant that does quite well in any reasonably temperate climate. You can grow it up in the Northeast as well. It might mm-hmm. not be its favored habitat, but it does it does okay. So it's it's a pretty a pretty hardy plant. Um, and as far as you know, also I mean I I, I like the the point that that Shannon was raising about uh, tobacco being one of the earliest domesticates. There's been a few hypotheses in various places about the world that some of the earliest domesticated or or you know manipulated plants at least were more intoxicant plants. Um, corn being domesticated primarily for alcohol production with uh, consumption of it as food coming almost as a secondary effect. Later, uh, people have said similar things about wheat and barley in the, um, in the old world, but there is a um, sort of a, a materialist bias in archaeology that's been obsessed with food production for, you know, oh, 50 years or more at the expense of looking at the uh, the archaeological and cultural significance of these intoxicant plants. Uh, Georgia, let me turn to you for a minute. Uh, as Sean was mentioning uh, this, uh, the, the need for, a, not the need as a little bit strong, but certainly a search for some intoxicants, if you want to call it that way. And you had uh, clearly done some, some major work in 
in Jamaica and in that part of the Caribbean where, uh, let's just say, substances other than tobacco were grown. <laughs> and um, I was just curious if you have been able to establish a connection there, because certainly in, in a place like Jamaica and in the Caribbeans, which are, you know, the self-sustaining echo zones by themselves because they are islands. What are you seeing there in terms of this entire tobacco uh, stimulant plant industries or, or cottage industries that emerged? Is, uh, the, is the island in and of itself a, a sort of a laboratory for this sort of thing? Well, I don't know if I can speak for Jamaica. I mean, we look at tobacco growing in places like Cuba, which is, you know, where cigars come from, right? Uh, it's sure, yeah. important It's a very important economic part of uh, the Cuban economy. But getting back to Jamaica, I, I, we're looking at early Jamaica, 17th century Jamaica, as opposed to you know, t- 21st century Jamaica. And, and sure. I, I don't really see, um, I don't see a lot of a connection there in the sense of, uh, what I do see a connection is that human beings have been using stimulants and hallucinogens for a very long time. And yeah. so that, to me, is the cultural continuum. But, right. but, but Jamaica in particular, um, I, I can't really say that that's, you know, especially um, attributed to Jamaica. I mean, any island, to me, islands are laboratories for studying human culture change uh, because, you know, they're very, they're very contained. They're very uh, insular in many ways. And so... That, to me, is actually the question of looking at, because I'm looking at sugar now, too, as well, So, and from an island perspective. So islands pose an inter- interesting laboratory to study those kinds of questions about stimulant foods but, and stimulant products. But I, I really can't say that Jamaica in particular um, is just one example. There, there, there are other, many others, too. But the Caribbean region was an area... Actually, tobacco was grown in the Caribbean region by Europeans early on, in addition to um, the eastern seaboard. Um, it had the right soil and climate for it, but, it, it, but sugar replaced that in terms of economic advantage. So, but tobacco did, was, did start out in the Caribbean region for a time. Right. Right, and that's, I guess that's where I was going with that. Now, if you look at the, at the western U.S. or uh, the southwest in particular, where there certainly are stimulants, but, but you know, not necessarily in the form of tobacco. Um, Shannon, any perspectives on that, on, on arid environments and semi-arid environments? Uh, is the spread of tobacco more, more a diffusion concept, or is it simply uh, a local variance that can be found, say, at the foothills of some of the ranges and in some of the seasonal habitats over there? Uh, well, you've touched on probably one of the hottest topics and that I think uh, in terms of tobacco in the western United States. And so what we, uh, we know that a lot of the indigenous tobaccos, the non-farmed or non-domesticated varieties of tobacco, they really like desert environments. And they, they spread, it's thought that they spread naturally in places like the American Great Basin, um, mm-hmm. Southwest, um, as early as the late Pleistocene, so maybe 10,000 years ago. Um, and it, it's hypothesized that if, if the plants were there, that human beings would have recognized those special intoxicant qualities that so many people know and love, and uh, <laughs> they would have grasped uh, onto those uh, qualities pretty quickly. But that's mm-hmm. all really, at this point, conjecture. Um, it, it, so... One of the most so so we're really interested. I'm very interested in uh, that human history of of use. And then there's this question of you you uh, 
of um, anthropogenic range extension or, or just, uh, you know, did human beings um, help uh, tobacco travel? Was it, was it just a natural occurrence or was it something that human beings helped with? And we know that um, uh, Native Americans actually cultivated tobacco well outside of their natural, its natural range, as far north as British Columbia, which is amazing. Um, and in fact, it, after contact, uh, the cultivation of indigenous tobaccos was abandoned when commercial tobacco came in. It was introduced, like Georgia was referring to, that irony of being re- reintroduced to the Americas by European explorers and fur traders at that time. Um, so we're really, there's so much to learn about the history of its use in uh, the Western United States. Um, but many believe that it's probably quite early, and there's pipes in the West that are four or 5,000 years old. Uh, we just are, still need to know what they were smoking. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's, that's one way to summarize it. Uh, we'll be back with our very fascinating discussion on archaeology and tobacco and the uh, recent advances technologically in the uh, identification and detection of these substances. After we return, we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get ready for some lively discussion on Barely Controlled Radio with Jeff Reed. From sports to relationships to current events and more, pretty much anything is on the table. Besides being a place kicker for the Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steelers, Jeff Reed is also a journalist, blogger, and opinionist. And he's ready to talk to you and tackle the issues that you've been wanting to talk about. Tune in to Barely Controlled Radio every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Lots of people talk about publishing their work, but have no idea where to start. If you are one of these aspiring authors or know somebody who is, don't miss Publishing Today Radio with Athena Dean Holtz. Thought leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and in general, storytellers all want to get their messages in print, and that includes branding and marketing. Athena and her guests are here to answer your publishing questions and more. Tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're 
You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're engaged in a very fascinating discussion on archaeology and tobacco, its spread, and uh, its technology. And we have been focusing on more demographic issues and domestication issues and exchanges and the development of the uh, tobacco trade to some degree. Uh, One of the elements that has catapulted this type of study into the forefront is the archaeological science of tobacco. And uh, as our experts have been discussing, uh, there are new techniques and there's new technologies available for uh, identifying the tobacco its nature, its composition, its structure, based on scientific methods. Sean Rafferty, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you have been doing and what is being done generally in terms of the technology and science of tobacco detection and identification? Sure. Well, I mean, I'll say first that the um, the field of residue analysis is one of the most revolutionary and rapidly developing fields of technical analysis in archaeology today. The use of various techniques, um, chromatographic and spectrographic techniques, um, to look and see exactly what molecules are present on artifacts has opened up, you know, whole new avenues of inquiry as to what various artifacts might have been actually used for in the past as opposed to just trying to reason it out by analogy or speculation. Most of that has been on ceramics and most of it has been on subsistence-based questions. And um, I had the the benefit, the luck, I guess, of, of being one of the first people to take that technology, in this case, gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy, uh, GCMS, and use that to look at the question of are certain artifacts used to smoke tobacco by looking for the presence or absence of the molecule nicotine or in other, because of the great age, I ended up looking more for decay products of nicotine as opposed for the nicotine itself. Um, by modern standards of what we can do nowadays, the work that I did in publications in, in 0206 and in 2012, all in the Journal of Archaeological Sciences, probably fairly um, rudimentary in as much as I could only look for the presence or absence of nicotine. I wasn't looking to see if there are other um, other molecules that might also be present. So, you know, it's, it's a lot more complicated uh, than, um, than what I was able uh, to do at the time. There are other challenges as well. Finally, just to say that in order to use residue analysis, you need residue, which is um, challenging in many situations. The oldest pipes to answer these questions of origins and ages of the practice are few in number. 
Um, and a lot of them were excavated a long time ago and have long since been cleaned out. So the data that we want might not survive at all because of the age, or it might have been destroyed by um, uh, ambitious curators um, in in, uh, in times past. And that is a bit of a speed bump in this um, in this analysis. I'm I'm sure that that Shannon can offer some comments along those lines as well. Shannon? Um, yeah, I, 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 well, I've been uh, working in residue analysis uh, for the past few years and just building on uh, Sean's pioneering work. Um, and there is a lot to be learned. I, I, I'm right now in the midst of a project where we're conducting a, a series of experiments. Uh, we're smoking pipes, not literally, but we're smoking pipes um, and creating experimental artifacts. Um, and uh, trying to, with various substances, tobacco and, and other um, plants that were smoked by Native peoples um, in the past. And uh, we're, we're really trying to hone the science of um, understanding the, the chemical composition, what happens to these pipes through the smoking process, um, because the chemistry does change from uh, the plant state to the uh, smoke state and figuring out how the residue is left in the pipe and how we might recognize it um, is something that we're, we're trying to uh, figure out through uh, a controlled laboratory setting, in a, in a controlled laboratory setting. Well, well, with respect to that, and you bring up an excellent point, has anybody looked at residue from, say, contemporary pipe smoking? And I would uh, turn to you, Shannon, uh, say a Native Americans smoking pipe of, of, say, the 21st century or late 20th century, and compared those residues with, uh, with some of the pipes that are even one or 200 years earlier than those, and what are those looking like? Yeah, that's precisely what we're doing. We're trying. We're we're looking at um, historical pipes that we find. We're we're looking at the experimental pipes that we that we produce in the laboratory, and then we're comparing these things to archaeological pipes. Uh-huh. At this point, we can't figure out the exact species of tobacco, for instance. So we can identify tobacco use through the biomarker nicotine, um, but we're trying to see if we can perhaps look at changes in species use through time um, through the chemical fingerprinting process. Right. And, uh, yeah, we might be able to get to some of that um, through through this, these additional, this additional work. Um, Georgia, have you done any work on residue analysis in your studies as well, or, or no? We had one pipe um, from Port Royal that looked like we could try that, and we sent it to the lab, and unfortunately, because Port Royal is underwater for 300 years, it's a little, it poses some interesting challenges to doing residue analysis, and the uh, results came back negative. In other words, we, we had no results. It was probably, uh-huh. the pipe was probably to infuse the salt water to make that determination. What about variability in the nicotine signature itself? Uh, Sean, do you have any insights on that? Are you seeing uh, different composition? Are you seeing different additives? Are you seeing different uh, matrices of residue that are clearly derived from plants that are indigenous to one area and not to another? 
Well, that's that's sort of the, the the big question that I think we would like to be able to to break into. Um, different species of tobacco have different concentrations of of nicotine um, in the plant tissue. Nicotiana rustica has one of the highest concentrations of that um, of that alkaloid, uh, nicotiana tobaccum, which is what is mostly smoked commercially today, has less nicotine, but it's a, um, uh, a, a less acrid smoke. It's, it's, um, it's, it's smoother. So, you know, you, you could in theory try to, you know, from an archaeological specimen, look at the, the concentration of nicotine in the residue and then try to extrapolate what um, original species is most likely to lead to that concentration, but there are a lot of confounding variables. Um, The environment in which the pipe was deposited, the rate of nicotine decay over time, the presence of possible other biomarkers, perhaps nicotine's not even the right molecule to look at. There might be, you know, certain molecules that are present in tobacco or quadrivalvus or any of the other species that aren't in, in, in rustica. And what is needed is for someone to sit down and do lots of basic laboratory experimental research to get a range of experimental signatures and mm-hmm. decay profiles. That's the kind of work that Shannon is um, is doing. I've done a little bit of that in the past, but I've moved on to some other other uh, other research at the time. So that's what's what's needed, and and the work is ongoing. Shannon, any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, and I, I just want to acknowledge, if it's okay, the National Science Foundation has worked, it's sponsored by the National Science Foundation. And um, I and um, my co-PIs include David Gang at the um, uh, Institute for Biological Chemistry at WSU and Yelmer Erkins at UC Davis. Um, we are really trying to look at these chemical signatures in a, in a methodical way, and uh, we're I can't say confident, but we're hopeful <laughs> that we'll be able to discriminate these different metabolites because, like Sean said, there are, I mean, each plant has thousands of these molecules and lots and lots of different compounds. And there might be signatures other than, than nicotine that can help us identify these plants. And, and this is something that, we're, that we'll be working on, so stay tuned. <laughs> Right. I guess with respect to that, um, one of the interesting elements of all of this is not only identifying the different strains, but also looking at distribution networks. I mean, I assume that you, if you found repetitive signatures in various areas and see that and and, and saw them sort of uh, clustering in particular areas, you could start to infer distribution patterns preference patterns by demographic group by time frame by individuals by social groups has has that kind of study progressed as well or no Sean Sean well people have looked a little bit at the pipes themselves as opposed to evidence of, sure. of tobacco. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for example, one of the main lines of evidence for the founding of the League of the Iroquois um, was based on the, uh, the, the sudden 
uh, increase in exchange of of, uh, of pipes between the various Iroquoian tribes as as pipes were given as as gifts and diplomatic envoys between between the various groups. So at this point, I think we're still material culture dependent um, as opposed to looking at the uh, at the, the the botanical or the chemical um, evidence. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, you have different ways of doing this because, like you say, you know, the style of the pipes and the distribution of those are also can be coupled with some of the residue information. And you know, for this dark period, certainly uh, records of pipe types or particular merchants who were distributing these things in various parts of uh, of the New World and and even in in, in the Old World. Um, I, I'm assuming that that sort of information can be tracked, despite the fact that it would be very uh, painstaking research to do that. Are there a lot of folks doing uh, research along these lines? Um, George, are you familiar with that? Because you've put together this volume. Are you seeing uh, an in- increased interest in, in this type of study? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of exciting work being done by my colleagues. I, you know, again, and, and I, as Time goes by, too, just the general in archaeology, we're becoming so much more oriented towards scientific research, which I think is fantastic, using, you know, the tools probably from other, we borrow from other disciplines, but <clears throat> to enable us to probe deeper into some of these questions and also have some hard data to say, look, we see this happening or this is not happening. So a combination of the material culture and the scientific data is, is to me, um, very exciting, <clears throat> and there are lots, lots of great work being done, and, and um so I think archaeology in that sense is going in a really good direction. Um, Sean, what do you see as a major direction in this type of study, uh, tobacco and archaeology? Well, I mean, I, I think that as the, as the chemical uh, analytical technology gets more and more sophisticated and as there is a larger and larger body of experimental data to refer back to, you will see, uh, I hope to see more and more of, of this um, of this work going on. Um, I've, I've written in the past about the need to do more um, research on uh, intoxicant use in general and if you're working in Native North America then tobacco is and was the intoxicant of choice and I, I certainly hope to see more of that in the future. And Shannon, what are you seeing? Um, I'm definitely seeing uh, the, the increase in archaeometry um, and residue analysis. Uh, and another exciting element of this research is um, just work with tribal communities and, and what some of this research can bring to um, modern um, health initiatives. Um, and specifically, um, the fact that, you know, tobacco has this long, very long history of use by Native peoples, um, and it's also um, a, a, uh, an abused uh, um, a plant that's uh, used commercially by, by all aspects, uh, many, many different uh, people of different backgrounds. Um, but the thing about tobacco is it has this sacred um, quality and this ritual quality that really goes back uh, deep in time with Native communities. And recognizing that, I think, is really important. Um, and there's, uh, you know, it's a lot of health, health initiatives and tobacco cessation programs that have really failed in um, Native 
many Native communities because they sort of treat all tobacco as bad. And that's sort of, you know, the, the status quo of how we treat, we, we try and get people to not smoke anymore. But people are beginning to understand because of this history of use and this intimate uh, knowledge and place in, in Native culture that that should be acknowledged in, um, in, in health initiatives. So uh, there are initiatives like Keep Tobacco Sacred, that campaign that distinguishes between recreational um, colonial use of tobacco, commercial use of tobacco versus the sacred um, uh, and, I, dare I say, more healthy use of, of, of <laughs> tobacco within the culture. And on that note, I think we've come full circle on the tobacco studies and the archaeology of tobacco. A fascinating topic. I want to thank my three guests, um, Dr. Uh, Sean Rafferty, um, Dr. Georgia Fox, and Dr. Shannon Tushingham um, for this fascinating discussion. We will be generating a number of additional programs on science, technology, and archaeology. It seems to be the major thrust in our field, and uh, we will keep you apprised of that. Again, thanks so much for listening. Thank you, participants, for being involved in the show. And until next time, please remember that the past is the guide to the future, and we will see you again or talk to you again next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, everybody. Appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.